All right. Now, let's go ahead and get started. Go ahead and turn to the book of Jonah, and uh, we'll get started tonight. I want to read some info. I want to tell you what you've got on these pages in front of you. Um, last week, we started with the book of Joel. You may say, why are we going to the book of Jonah? Because we're doing our best to follow the minor prophets chronologically speaking. So, Jonah would be the next in line. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you that there is some dispute about the date of the writing of the book of Jonah. Uh, basically, some folks think Jonah wrote it. Others think that somebody wrote it about Jonah. And then there's a third category that believe it's all just a fairy tale, but we don't pay them no mind anyway, do we? Amen? Uh, I believe Jonah wrote the book. Now, if I got to heaven and the Lord said, No, Toby, you wrong about that, I wouldn't have much to be upset about. Uh, it really doesn't make a big difference who pinned it down because the Holy Ghost is the author. Uh, but I believe that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. That's that's my opinion. Um, and so that's why we date it as early as we date it. But there is no dispute as to the time frame in which Jonah lived. Jonah lived when Jeroboam II was on the throne of uh, Israel, of the northern ten tribes. And 2 Kings 14.25 says a little bit about the ministry of Jonah. talks about how during his time that Israel was able to uh, win back some cities that the Syrians had taken from them. So evidently, Jonah had a successful ministry. It's funny, we only get a glimpse sometimes of somebody in the Word of God, and we kind of define everything we know about them by that glimpse. Probably we're looking tonight at the worst time in the life of the prophet Jonah. As you read the prophet Jonah, you'll find that it's not really about a great fish. Now, there is great fish in there. Uh, the New Testament calls it a whale. You say, well, what do you do with that preacher? I believe the Bible. Uh, I, I think anybody that looked at a whale, you wouldn't say, whew, look at that big old dog, right? That's ignorant. You'd look at it, you'd say, man, that's a big fish. So there's nothing wrong with that. We understand that, don't we? was a great fish. If the scientists want to call it a mammal, that's fine. But I, I'm, And I'm not against all science either, by the way. I mean, you know, uh, we have a creator God. And I'm not against all science, but there is such thing as science falsely so-called. And you say, well, how do you know if it's science falsely so-called? Because science is meant for the revelation of the creator. That's the purpose of it. That we might study his signature and know more about him and know more of him. So if science comes along and tries to tell me uh, that there is no creator, I know that that's science falsely so-called. If it comes along and tries to tell me that God's word is false and is not true, I know that that's science falsely so-called. But in the book of Jonah, we all kind of think of Jonah, we immediately think of a whale or a fish. Actually, the whale is only mentioned four times uh, in the book of Jonah. You might say, well, the book of Jonah... Uh, is about Nineveh, that great city. Well, the the city of Nineveh is actually only mentioned about nine times in the book of Jonah. You might say, well, surely the book is about Jonah himself. I mean, he bears the, the title of it. It's his name. The name Jonah, by the way, means dove. And, uh, you know, sometimes in the Bible, a person's name reflected their character. Not the case with Jonah. Amen. And uh, so uh, the, you might say, well, surely it's about Jonah. His name is on the book. Well, Jonah's name is mentioned about about 18 times, I believe it is, in the book of Jonah. You say, well, preacher, what's the book of Jonah about? The name of God is mentioned 38 times in the four chapters that are set before us tonight. The book of Jonah, like every other book of the Bible, is about the Lord. That's who it's about. Christ said, 
uh, to search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, which speak of me. Uh, he said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. And so the Word of God is about God and about the Son of God, and the book of Jonah is no different. The book of Jonah is unusual in this respect. That, uh, In fact, I'll tell you what, you're there in the book of Jonah. I want you to turn over with me to chapter number 3. You want to read the prophecy of Jonah? I bet you that we can read the prophecy of Jonah uh, in, oh, about half a second. you believe that? Do you believe that I can do that tonight? I can read the entire prophecy of Jonah in about half of a second. Are you ready? Look at verse number 4. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and none of us shall be overthrown. It's the only bit of prophecy in the entire book of, of Jonah. Now you say, well, why is Jonah amongst the minor prophets? Because he was a prophet. Much of what Jonah said for the Lord is not recorded in Scripture. Uh, and so, though it is a book of the minor prophet, it is unique in this respect that it is, by and large, I mean by a far majority, a narrative book. Other minor prophets do have times of narration, times where there's a narrative set forth. Hosea, I think, is probably the most prominent one. I mean, the first three chapters of the book of Hosea are a narrative. But uh, the rest of the book of Hosea is prophecy. The book of Jonah does have prophecy. But it is, by and large, a narrative book about a prophet of the Lord. Now, in front of you, you've got a, a few things here. And I, I, some of these I want to read. Some of them I may. Some of them I may not. I may read it all. Once you look at this introduction to Jonah. Listen to this carefully. As a Hebrew and as a successful prophet, Jonah thought he knew God, but he did not know him nearly as well as he thought he did. Jonah would have come under the Apostle Paul's scathing indictment in Romans 2, 17 through verse 21 in the first part of it, where Paul says, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself. Being of like passions as we are, Jonah had problems. He did not know God well enough to grieve over sin the way God grieves. Neither did he know God well enough to rejoice over the repentance of sinners the way God rejoices. Jonah had great difficulty accepting the fact that God loved Gentiles just as much as he loved Jews, and the fact that he loved the cruel and oppressive Assyrians just as much as he loved him. Now I'm going to tell you tonight, I know you didn't come for this, but I'm going to make you mad. Some of you I'm going to make you mad tonight. And you say, how do you know that, preacher? Because when the Lord pricked my heart about this, it made me mad. I'm being honest with you. It grieved me when the Lord pricked my heart. Something within me wanted to say, no, Lord, that's not right. But I had to humble myself and say, Lord, you're always right. And if me and you disagree, it's because I'm wrong. I want to say a word about the whale. I know this is a lot to read, but I believe it's going to give some context. Well, no, I'll tell you what, we'll read it here in a few moments. We won't read it right at this juncture. All right, let's jump into the book of John. Let's have a word of prayer before we do, though. Let's ask the Lord to help us and bless us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the health and the freedom and the liberty and the want to to come out to this place tonight and to hear your word. Help us, Lord, to have our hearts open, instruct us, convict us, exhort us, and edify us for your glory and honor. We love you tonight, Lord. 
We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Let me pause there for a moment and say that that verse, verse number 1, we've already learned something about the book of Jonah, and that is that it is a historical book. For a lot of years, people have attacked the book of Jonah. The book of Daniel and the book of Jonah are the two most attacked books in your entire King James Bible. Do you know why that is? Because the book of Daniel speaks about the exaltation of the Son of God. It speaks about God's prophetic timetable. It speaks about His love for the Jewish people and His prophetic timetable concerning them. It exposes the kingdom of the Antichrist. And I, you know, I just I think there's there's a few verses that bother the devil out of the book of Daniel. I, I think when Daniel saw a stone that was that was carved without hands, and, and when it came a flying and it hit the feet of, uh, of, of uh, an image that represented the kingdom of the Antichrist, and when it struck it and crushed it to powder, and when that stone filled the whole earth, and the angel said to Daniel, that stone is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that stone is the kingdom of the Messiah that's coming, and when Jonah begins to see the Ancient of Days sitting upon the throne that will never be cast out, I just think that bothers the devil. Wouldn't it you if you were the devil? I mean, that's his death warrant. I mean, that's, I, I don't know how you could do it, but if somehow you get a video of the way you're going to die, it'd be like you had to sit down and watch it. And the devil hates the book of Daniel. The book of Jonah is the other most attacked book of the Word of God. You say, why? Because there's only one sign concerning the Messiah that's given. Christ said this is the only sign concerning the Messiah, not concerning him in his entirety, but concerning his earthly ministry and his death and the sacrifice on Calvary. He said, as Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so shall also the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. To believe that Daniel, or excuse me, Jonah is a falsehood, to attack the book of Jonah, I want you to listen carefully, is to attack the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to claim him to be a liar. It's to claim him to be a charlatan. It's to claim him to be a crook and a deceiver. And so it's no wonder the devil hates the book of Jonah the way that he does. Right there in verse number 1, and it's confirmed in the book of Matthew by, by the blessed lips of the Son of God that Jonah is not a fairy tale. He is not an allegory. He is not a children's bedtime story. Jonah was a literal, historical person. And we have the narrative of his life. And again, it's confirmed in, in 2 Kings chapter uh, 14 and verse 25. What does the Lord say? He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Nineveh was truly a great city, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. What Babylon was to the Babylonian Empire, Nineveh was to the Assyrian Empire. It was said that it was, uh, if you were to include uh, Nineveh as well as all of its suburbs, it was said that the circumference was 60 miles. It was a massive city. It was a a uh, a, a mecca of world uh, merchandise, of uh, economic prosperity, of military power. People trembled when they heard the Assyrian army was coming. And by the way, we talked last week in the book of Job. And that was what God was prophesying, was the overrunning of the Assyrian army over Judah. You know what God says about the Assyrian army? He likens them to a band of locusts that leave nothing behind. 
People trembled when they heard of the Assyrian army. It, it was a metropolis of all things modern and of all things powerful. But let me say that also Nineveh was a great enemy to Israel. We're going to start to understand a little bit of how Jonah's mind works. And uh, the reason that God convicted me about it is because I realize that I understand something of how Jonah's mind worked. We've said many times that Jonah would not go to Nineveh because he was afraid. That could be true. There, there may be some truth to that. The Assyrians were known for their violence and their cruelty. They, they, they were known, one of their trademarks was uh, to take prisoners of war to uh, spear them upon a great high uh, pile on a great spear and to lead them out into the desert sun to roast. They would behead uh, uh, cities by the thousands. And they were known for their cruelty to children because they didn't know what to do with them. Now, and I'm going to try to mind the Holy Ghost tonight, and I'm going to try to say just exactly what he wants me to say. But does that sound like somebody else that you know? I told you, some of y'all are going to be mad at me before we leave here. But just understand, I'm not any happier about this than you are. Sort of sounds like somebody else that we know. Another people group. If you turn on the news, you'll hear about them. That are known for beheading communities. That are known for their cruelty to children. That are known for their violence and their rage. You see, and I don't know so much that it was that Jonah was so afraid of them as it was that he was afraid for his nation of them. Look the next verse. But Jonah, but Jonah, rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, went down to Joppa, he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Assyria in, in Bible geography would, would have been to the northeast of them. And uh, Jonah decides to go to Tarshish. Many believe that this is a Spanish city. He's literally trying to run in the opposite direction of these people. And do you understand what it meant if the Assyrians were forgiven? Jonah understood. He was prophet enough to recognize that Israel was backslidden. And that if they didn't repent, God was going to judge them. He was also prophet enough to understand that the most likely instrument of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel was the Assyrians. The Assyrians, in many ways, were at the height of their influence, but they were at a waning point in their political power. And it was a time where if God had dealt a blow to them, we know that, that the, the judgment of God, the, the wrath of God, that millstone may move slowly, but it grinds to powder. I'm not implying that God, His arm is shortened, but certainly if God had dealt a blow of judgment to the Assyrians at this time in their history, it could have crippled them. And the vast and great and dreadful enemy of Israel would have been removed from the political landscape you have to understand how Jonah feels. It wasn't Jonah's fear that moved him. It was Jonah's patriotism that moved him. To put it very simply, Jonah felt like whoever was the enemy of Israel was the enemy of him. And whoever was the enemy of him must be the enemy of God. Now understand something. God, is, God has a dispensational system. I believe that. God has a prophetic timetable. God has an elect and beloved people. And that elect and beloved people, I hate to break to you, it ain't Baptists. 
I know some folks would like for us to believe it is, but it's the Jews. There is certainly a way in which God expresses his love to the Jewish people far and above that which a Gentile could ever understand. But don't mistake for one moment to think that just because the, the Jews are God's elect people, that he doesn't love every human being that walks this earth. Let me tell you something. You're an alien from the covenants of God. So, so am I. If, if it wasn't for God's grace, there wouldn't be a single one of us here tonight. We're here because God loves Gentiles. We wouldn't be here if God didn't love Gentiles. So let me ask you something tonight. I'm aware of the dangers to our country. I'm aware of the dangers to our national ideology. I'm aware that we have an enemy. But which would delight you more? To see a Muslim killed or to see a Muslim saved? You answered awful quick. I didn't answer that quick when me and the Lord talked about it. I'm being serious. I'm being honest with you. I understand we have an enemy. I'm aware of that. But what would you rather see in Iran? Would you rather see retribution or revival? Because the truth of the matter is this. Sometimes our patriotism, patriotism can come in con conflict with our Christian duty. It hurt me when God said that to me. I, I wanted to look at God and say, you don't know them, God. But I couldn't. I wanted to say, Lord, you don't know what they've done. But I couldn't do that. I wanted to say, Lord, if you knew how I felt. But I couldn't say that. And maybe a part of me wanted to say, Lord, I just don't think you're right about that. But I couldn't say that. Can I remind you that Paul, at one time, was a Christian-hating, Christian-killing, Middle Eastern terrorist. You know what we think when we see... I, I'm, I'm being honest, and this will probably... I, I mean, hey, they, they can throw you in jail for honesty. I know this, but I'm not ashamed to admit my faults. The Bible says to confess your faults one to another, that you may be healed. And I'm going to be honest with you. Let me ask you something. When you see a young Arab man walking through a store... Tell me which of these two thoughts comes to your mind. I need to witness to him, or I need to watch him. Should I witness to him, or should I watch him? I don't think it was fear that motivated Jonah. I'm sure that was an element of it. But can I remind you that here just a few verses later, he's going to look at a bunch of pagan sailors and say, just throw me overboard. What was God's prophecy to Nineveh? Now, we're not giving it this early in the book of Jonah. But when the word of the Lord comes the second time to Jonah, uh, Jonah goes and he delivers the prophecy. So we're to believe, I think, that Jonah had the full prophecy concerning Nineveh the first time God gave it to him. God wouldn't have given him something to do without everything he needed to do to do it and to obey it. And I think Jonah knew what the prophecy was, from the moment that the word of the Lord spoke to him, he knew that the prophecy was 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And I'll tell you what I think Jonah was thinking, because I think I would have probably been thinking it. 
surely I can run for 40 days. And even if I can't, it'll take God at least 40 days to get somebody else. You know the sad truth Jonah came to realize? It wasn't 40 days from when the Lord spoke to him. It was 40 days from when the Lord spoke to them. You know there is such thing as accountability. And I'm not in any way trying to imply that people groups that have never heard the gospel go to heaven by default. I'm not implying that because I don't believe that. I believe that there's none other name. I believe that is the only name. I, I wouldn't listen. I wouldn't put a penny towards missionary work if I thought that ignorance was enough to get you to heaven. So I'm not implying that, but I do understand this. I understand that much is given, much is required, and I understand that the Lord was trying to do something in the city of Nineveh. And Jonah came to realize, but I think Jonah was just trying to run long enough. I think that's the reason whenever he's confronted with it. And listen, I understand we're off the tracks already. But God's given me something, and I can't help but give it to you. So if we get through the book of Jonah, God bless us, we'll get a gold star for it. But if not, if I can just give you what God gave me, I, I think you'll be better for it like I was better for it. It's bitter medicine, but it heals the soul. The truth of the matter is, and I know this, and it's been a part of my theology since I was a wee little child. I sat in school, and I sang it the way, uh, Sunday school, I sang it the way that you sang it, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in inside. But somewhere in the midst of the firebombs and the beheadings and the fear, we've lost sight of the fact that God loves Muslims, Orthodox Jews that are still blinded in their religion, Roman Catholics that need to be delivered from the bondage of the papacy, and just the plain old atheist that thinks he knows more than you and I. By the way, we could say uh, religious Baptists too, probably. Jonah says, I'll just run away. He rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. And the devil, Jonah didn't know this, but the devil was in the uh, shipping business because it says, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. Let me say this, when you go to run from the, the will of God, the devil give you every convenience you need. You know, sometimes it looks like you see people and everything seems to be going real well for them when they're out of the will of God. That's not by accident. As a Christian out of the will of God, we still, listen carefully, we still have an enemy even when we're out of the will of God. But his tactics and his strategy changed. Do you know what a good enemy does when he sees that an army has employed a uh, strategy that's going to be self-defeating? He just steps away and leaves them alone. And so he goes. He's got the money in his pocket. The ship is ready. And he pays the fare thereof. Went down into it. And by the way, you'll find that Jonah just keeps going down and down and down and down. And that's what direction, that, that any direction away from God is a direction down. You're going out of the will of God, you're going down. But the Lord, I like that, tells me God didn't forget about Jonah. Tells me God didn't write him off. Tells me that the chastening hand of God is an expression of his love. But the Lord sent a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship liked to, was like to be broken. Can I just say this? Between Jonah's rebellion and Jonah's confession, God doesn't speak to him audibly. He speaks to him through a storm. He speaks to him through uh, a, a, a great uh, fish. He speaks to him through sorrows, but he does not speak to him. Let me tell you something. You need to get worried 
I know sometimes, and I say this, I mean, I'm not just trying to say this as a preacher, but sometimes, you know, when, when, uh, when we get out of the will of God, we quit hearing the voice of God. And it's easy sometimes, and I'm sure every preacher preaches a bad message, and I preach, I, I, and there's some of them out there that ain't never preached one, because I've preached all theirs. Amen? I, I mean, I have days like that, I'm sure times when I preach in the flesh and God can't use it. Let me tell you something. When you quit hearing the voice of God, something's wrong in your life. He'll get your attention however he can. So he sends a great wind. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship uh, into the sea to lighten it on them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. That tells you something about his spiritual condition. So the shipmaster came to him, and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us, that we perish not. That's the word Elohim. That's the name of God. It's a generic name. It's the Creator God. They're saying, Call upon your Creator, your God. Whoever you recognize, call upon Him. And they said, Everyone to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. By the way, you know, sometimes you get help from reading in between the lines of the Word of God. Did you notice what's missing there? The captain comes down, and I'm sure with gruff and sun-baked hands, he shakes this hiding prophet and says, Wake up, sleeper! What do you mean by this? Have you resigned yourself to death? Call upon your God! Cry to your God! But Jonah doesn't do that. Jonah just sits there, sullen and content, go to a watery grave rather than get right with God. I, I've seen people get in that shape. I was a youth pastor. I saw it every week. <laughs> I've seen people get that shape. Let me tell you a little secret. Young people are not any more rebellious than adults. they just got more people telling them what to do, and they're less polite about it. Adults are just as rebellious. Now, I've seen adults get in that shape. I mean, I can give you names right now of people out of church, out of the will of God. God has stormed into their life like a wrecking ball, but they sit complacent, ignoring the chastening hand of God. And right now, the storm is raging. And if they're not careful, God will start stirring up a whale to come their way, just as he did for Jonah. They said, everyone to his fellow, come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose, lot, for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Jehovah. He gives a national name to God. He identifies God to them. The God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, Jehovah, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up, and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Let me give you another insight into a rebellious heart. A rebellious heart will sink those around it before it will bow the knee to the Son of God. He was willing at first to let the whole ship sink. 
Boy, that's a commentary, and we always, I mean, I don't know, maybe you ought to be younger than you are tonight, because it's a good commentary for young people. Some of you are young people. Some of you all aren't, and I'll let you decide who's which. But it's a good commentary to young people to be careful. You know the only thing more dangerous? Me and my wife were talking today. We're talking about Bible college, and and, uh, she's got a, a friend who's going back to college to get her MRS degree. You know, you've heard that. And we're talking about how the will of God works. We're talking about how that oftentimes young people like that, and I'm not saying that's wrong for everyone, but oftentimes young people like that, they are pushed into that situation by overprotective parents, mothers and daddies that think they can put a bubble around their child and somehow keep them away. Can I tell you something? The only, the only influence more dangerous to your children and grandchildren than a lost person is a Christian young person who's out of the will of God. Boy, there's some perspective. A Christian young person out of the will of God is more dangerous to your young people than a lost young person. Because let me tell you something. A lost young person, God's working to try to win them. But a backslid Christian young person, God's working to try to break them. And I've I've known a lot of young people that were riding in the same ship with a backslid young person doing about 75 down a freeway when the whale came along. I've known a lot of young people were at that same party inside that whale's belly with with young people that were out of the will of God and their lives got wrecked because they were with them. God's not unjust. God was doing something in both their lives. But I'm really saying this. It was dangerous to be a sailor on Jonah's ship. And we need to warn our young people of that. It says, verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea rot was tempestuous against them. You know what that is? That's people that, that are trying to withhold the chastening hand of God out of compassion for someone that's out of the will of God. Let me say this. There's a place to just step back and let God deal with them. You say, oh, preacher, you're being harsh now. You're being, you're being hateful now. No, I'm not being any harsher about our young people than God was being about Jonah. God loved Jonah. God didn't do a thing in Jonah's life that he didn't have to do to get Jonah where he needed to be. And you'll see that they didn't make it to land. And if they kept him on the boat, the boat would have sank. Sometimes we do that. Some of you have children, grandchildren, friends, sisters, brothers, nieces, nephews. And the storm is raging in their life. And you're trying to hold it together for them. That's a dangerous place to be because you are standing in the way of what God is trying to do in their life. I'm not saying we don't help people that need help. I'm saying we need to recognize when the hand of God is heavy upon someone and not try to fight against what God's trying to accomplish. He thought you came to have fun tonight. First thing I told you is I was going to make you mad. I've kept that promise. I said we was going to end at 8. I don't know if I'll keep that promise. But I told you I was going to make you mad, and I've delivered. Verse 14, Wherefore they cried unto the Lord, they cried unto Jehovah, and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from a rage. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great feast.
fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I want to read this to you. I found this interesting as I was looking at my studies. Ignorant people have said that a whale could not swallow a man. But a giant sperm whale that certainly could have swallowed a man is exhibited in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. Captured off Knights Key, Florida in 1912, this whale is 45 feet long. That's, that's longer than my house I just sold. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you something. You say, boy, he must have felt cramped in that whale. You ought to live with us. Amen? Has a mouth 38 inches wide. That's wider than a standard exterior doorway. And weighs 30,000 pounds. A fish in its stomach at the time it was captured weighed about 1,500 pounds. Numerous stories of men being swallowed alive uh, by whales, should say whales, it says whaled, but it should say whales, and surviving the ordeal have been validated. Listen to this. I, I, I thought this was fascinating. In February 1891, the crew of the whaling ship Star of the East sighted a large sperm whale off the Falkland Islands. They harpooned the whale, and in its death throes, it swallowed a man named James Bartley. A day and a half later, his shipmates, who thought he had drowned, found him unconscious in the whale's belly. Barley lived to tell about it, and his story was published in newspapers. Describing, now listen to this, describing his sensations as he slid into the innermost part of the whale, he said he could breathe easily, but the heat was unbearable. That's going to mean something to you here in a second. His whole appearance was changed by the ordeal, for his neck, face, and hands which had been exposed to the whale's gastric juices, were permanently bleached to a livid whiteness. This story gives us an idea of what Jonah experienced when he was imprisoned in the great fish. Jonah was imprisoned three days and three nights, and much debate centers around whether or not he died while he was there. The Lord referred to Jonah's ordeal as a type of his death, burial, and resurrection. In Matthew 12.40, the parallel is exact. As Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. A man who was miraculously kept alive uh, for, three, uh, for three days and three nights does not seem to be an exact parallel of the Lord who was dead and buried for three days and three nights. So the likelihood is that Jonah died in the belly of the fish and was miraculously resurrected at the end of the third night. Probably Jonah uttered his prayer just before he lost consciousness. Now, if you do any independent study, this next sentence is for you, because you're going to find two schools of thought about this. You're going to find, well, I guess you'd find three, really. You're going to have find some that believe that Jonah lived three days, three nights in the belly of the whale. You're going to find some that believe that Jonah died and was resurrected. Now, I'm not going to throw my shoe at you if you believe either one of those two, but I believe the latter. I believe that Jonah died and was resurrected. We can argue about it if you want. That's fine. We'll, that, they'll probably put a punch hole in our Baptist card if we do. But uh, I'm not interested in that. Uh, that's what I believe. Then there's a third category that tries to change the Bible. And they try to say that the phrase three days and three nights can reflect three parts of three days or three nights. This is the same crowd that would have us believe Jesus was crucified on Friday. Now, I'm aware, notice this next phrase, the Hebrew idiom translated three days can refer to parts of three days. But the expression translated three days and three nights must be taken literally. There is a Hebrew idiom that reflects the idea of three parts of days. I'm aware of that. 
uh, and I've read the commentators, and I know what they say. But three days and three nights means three days and three nights. It means no less than 72 hours. That's what it means, what your Bible means. That's why I believe Christ was crucified probably on a Wednesday, no later than a Thursday. Also why I believe that that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Now, that's interesting. You've got it on a piece of paper and you can take it home and, and read it and make up your own mind. Notice the next phrase. It says, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Now we can try to decide what that word then means if we want to. Because it says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. And it says, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. If you want to believe he prayed before he died, if you want to believe he prayed after his resurrection, if you want to believe that he was alive the whole time, prayed in, in the midst of it, you believe whatever you want, I believe he probably prayed that as he's been swallowed. Now, you don't have to believe that, but that is what I believe. It says, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I. You remember I said that heat would be interesting. And thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The, the depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. By the way, you notice he's still going down. He's still going down. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And by the way, that's, that's one of my favorite verses in this King James Bible, is verse number 8. When you get home tonight, I want you, if you're taking notes, jot that reference down. When you get home tonight... Take that back out and just chew on it a little while. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. I'm not going to say a whole lot about chapter number 2, but I will point out two things. One, Jonah had been in his Bible, and especially the book Psalms. The book Psalms would have been written at that time. And I want you to notice on your page there, he quotes out of Psalms 3, Psalms 5, Psalms 18, Psalms 31, Psalms 42, Psalms 66, Psalms 77, Psalms 116, and Psalms 120. All in the space of about what? Uh, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, seven, all about 8 verses, something in that respect. Quotes out of all those Psalms. But really it's not the quotes out of the Psalms that interest me. Instead it's another phrase that he uses. Look at verse number 7. He says, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. He says, I remembered Jehovah. Now, there's, there's a lot there in that name Jehovah. To say the name Elohim is to imply God's creative power. God's sovereign power over creation, 
all things that He created. Certainly, it could have said that. I mean, it wouldn't have been anything wrong if the Lord had, or if Jonah had remembered Elohim. It might have been that He would have said, well, I remember the Creator God. I remember the one that created the fish. I remember the one that prepared this fish for me. I remember the one that caused that fish to pass my way. I remember the one that looked at that fish and took His divine tongue depressor and said, ah, and made that fish swallow me. But that's not what He says. He says, I remembered the Lord. And oh, how much more precious that is. He doesn't necessarily speak of God's power. He speaks of God's pardon. Because he says, I remember the God that spake to my father Abraham when he was in Assyrian darkness. I remember when, when, when God spoke to my father Abraham when the Bible calls him Assyrian ready to perish. I remember when my father Abraham went out of the will of God down into Egypt, running from the presence of God, running from his circumstances, and he could have been swallowed up in that pagan nation. He could have been put to death by that pagan ruler, but instead God in His grace watched over him. God in His grace pardoned him. God in His grace provided for him. God in His grace watched over him in that time. He says, I remember the God that was with his son Isaac when he made the same mistake. And the Lord God watched over him. I remember the same God that watched over Jacob and loved him enough to wrestle him and cripple him. That's what it took to get him in the will of God. I I remember the same Lord that watched over my father Joseph when he was in Egyptian darkness, when he was in the midst of a prison and everybody had forgot about him. I I mean, the other prisoners had forgot about him. His family had forgot about him. Even his daddy had already counted him off as dead and gone. But the Bible says that the Lord Jehovah was with Joseph in the prison. Jonah says, in the midst of my prison, maybe God's with me. I remember this same Lord that was with the children of Israel in 400 years of Egyptian bondage. I remember the same Lord that spoke to our father Moses when he was on the backside of a desert. I remember the same Lord that thundered from Sinai. I remember the same Lord that made the provision of the slain lamb. He says, I've got a God of grace. And I remember that now. I remember that my God loved me enough come after me, but I also remember that God loved pagan Gentiles enough to send me after them. And maybe if in the midst of their backsliddenness, if in the midst of their iniquity, in the midst of their running, in their natural running, with a law of conscience in and of themselves, they've pushed God away. By the way, you ever read how Nineveh started? Most commentators will say uh, that, that Nimrod built Nineveh. Let's turn there. This is important. I know we don't have a lot of time, but let's turn there. I promise you, we'll get to all. Hey, listen, I don't care if we have to be here till 1130 tonight. Don't get nervous. Turn to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. I'm going to give you some perspective on Nineveh. Most people will tell you that Nimrod built Nineveh. We know who Nimrod is. And your your opinion may vary from mine. I believe Nimrod to be the founder of the uh of the the uh hierarchical priesthood. Uh, let me say that again. I want you to understand what I'm saying. I believe Nimrod to be the founder of uh the division between laity and priesthood that has manifested itself in the Roman Catholic Church today. And you don't have to believe that, but I do believe that. I, I believe that his religion that he that he founded and perpetrated 
in his time, I believe that it transformed through various different cultures. And I believe today, the same way that in his day after he died, uh, they, they, they worshipped his wife and his child who was supposed to be the reincarnation of Nimrod. I, I think today we've got that same form of worship, uh, with a, listen now, with a deified mother. A deified perpetual Godhead mother and a deified child. But that's a sermon for another day. Look what it says. Verse 8. And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Calah. And reason between Nineveh and Kala, the same is a great city. Now, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe Asher left Babylon and builded Nineveh because he didn't like what was going on in Babylon. You don't have to believe that, but I believe that. I believe there had always been somewhat of a witness of truth in Nineveh. And you say, oh, preacher, are you trying to say that's why they deserved God to send somebody to them? No, I'm trying to say this. They were all the more guilty because they had turned their back on truth. I think Jonah thinks, you know, if the same Lord that loved them enough to pursue them in their backsliddenness, if he's with me, maybe he loves me enough to treat me with grace. And he invokes sort of a promise of God. Verse 4, Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. You know what that phrasing means, I will look again? It has the idea of praying towards Daniel invoked this same promise of God three times a day. He'd open his window towards Jerusalem, and he would pray. There wasn't even a temple there. But he understood that uh, many, many years before then, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 38, when Solomon was dedicating the temple, uh, Solomon made this prayer. What prayer and supplication soever be made by any man, or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands toward this house. Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. In the midst of all this sorrow and all this fear, like a flash of hope, Jonah remembers that he's got a God that hears. He's got a God that hears. He don't know which way is up, but best as he can figure, he lifts his hands toward it, and he prays, and he says, God, I want you to hear me. And I'm glad to know. I'm glad to know when I, I'm not talking about you. If you want to take a break, turn your hearing aid off, go ahead and do it. So I'm going to preach about me for just about two seconds here. I'm glad to know that when Toby Weber gets out of the will of God, when Toby Weber gets backslid on the Lord, when Toby Weber gets so far out of the will of God that God has to send a whale his way to get his attention, when God has to really ring my bell, and my world gets turned upside down, I'm in the midst of a storm and a circumstance that I can't understand. I can't find down and I can't find up and I'm so disoriented, I don't understand anything anymore that if I can just figure out best as I know how where God is and reach out to Him, He'll reach out to me. He'll hear me where I'm at. 
Jonah says, I'll pay what I've said I'll pay. How does he pay it? Well, he says it, verse number 9. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. And he pays it. Salvation is of the Lord. That's the message he was taking to the Ninevites. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now they knew some things. In fact, let's go on to chapter 3. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, It's been said that the victorious life, the victorious Christian life, is nothing but a series of new beginnings. You're going to fail, you're going to mess up, but we have a second time God. We have a second chance God. He could have wrote Jonah off, could have looked at that whale and said, oh, he ain't worth it, just digest him, and, well, you know what would happen. But he didn't. And the word of the Lord came the second time unto Jonah, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. That's why I believe that Jonah already knew the message in verse number 1 of chapter 1. Because the Lord doesn't say, Jonah, this is what I want you to say. He says, Jonah, I've already told you what to say, so I want you to go say it. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. I don't think that's saying three days from where the, the whale uh, threw him up on the dry land. I think it's saying it would take you three days to walk across the city of Nineveh. I also don't think it's saying it would take you three days to go through all the nooks and crannies of Nineveh. Some folks believe that, but I'm going to be honest. I mean, it would take you a pretty long time just to figure out this neighborhood. Amen? Uh, I think it's saying three days across. Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's just how many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words in the English. It's five words in the Hebrew. And what's the response? So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even the least of them. As I was reading Philip's commentary on this, he made this statement. Philip's was from a different generation. And he was, uh, he was grown and, and, and involved in things during World War II. And he said, I remember during uh, the Great War, during World War II, that uh, the king would come on the radio and he would call uh, for a national day of prayer. Philip said, would to God he would have come on and called for a national day of repentance. Then we may still be a superpower. This is remarkable. I mean, we're not talking about some little podunk backwoods villa. We're talking about the great city Nineveh. I know a lot of money is put. We just had revival, you know. We used to do mail-outs for revival, and uh, we'd send out all these mail-outs, and it cost money, and, and we, we didn't see a whole lot of people come in. I just do it on Facebook anymore, but, you know, you can put a lot of money into a meeting. <laughs> Jonah didn't. Jonah walks in. He says what to him would have been five words. And all of a sudden, the hand of God moves upon the Ninevites. I do think there's more to the story. I don't think that Jonah just walked through saying that over and over again. But don't you imagine what it must have looked like when that prophet walked into the city. Surely word had reached them of what had happened. Surely as he climbed up on land and somebody looked, and here's this man, he literally looks like a ghost. He's bleached white, he's dressed strange, his clothes covered in seaweed, and he gets up and he says, I'm going to Nineveh with a message from God. Maybe some little messenger boy ran ahead of him and said, you'll never believe who's headed this way. They say, who? He says, Jonah. They say, who's Jonah? He says, Jonah's a prophet of Jehovah, the God of Israel. They say, Israel? Israel's our enemy. 
What's he doing, coming to pronounce doom upon us? The little boy says, yes, he is. He is coming to pronounce doom upon us. They say, I knew it. What a foolish old man. And then he says, but he's got more to the message. Because not only does he come and pronounce doom, but he keeps saying salvation is of the Lord. It didn't mean much until Jonah walked in began to tell his story. They knew he wasn't lying, so they had to believe him. Listen to what it says. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let the man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? It was pretty impressive up to that verse, but the real beauty is in verse number 10 where the Bible says, And God saw their works. You say, I didn't know God paid attention to our works. Well, most of the time our works are an expression of our heart. And God's not real impressed with our works if there's no heart behind it. But uh, if our works are just an outpouring of what's going on in our heart, I'd say the king of Nineveh is probably being sincere. Now, I don't know about you. You know, you see folks all the time, if you're like this, God bless you, that's fine. Uh, but you see folks like that, I mean, they'll put sweaters on their dogs and, and, you know, I mean, they've got, they've got tuxedos for their goldfish and all that. It's a little bit different because the, the king of Nineveh says, I want everything to be in sackcloth and ashes. I'd say he is sincere, wouldn't you? That they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. Now, some folks have a little, little trouble with that phrase, he repented. And you know why they have trouble with it? It's a common uh, tool in Scripture that's used, but usually it's used concerning uh, body parts. And it's called anthropomorphism. For instance, the Bible uh, talks about how the Lord would, would uh, shelter us under the shelter of his wings. Well, God doesn't have wings. You say, you don't know that. Yeah, sure I do, because we're made in his image. God didn't give me wings. He ain't got wings. And uh, the Bible uses that terminology all the time, and it sort of gives physical attributes. And the Bible says God is a spirit, so any physical attributes that it gives to him, in, in some sense, is, is what we call anthropomorphism. And this, too, is anthropomorphism, but it's not anthropomorphism. Well, I'll get it here. I'm not speaking in tongues. I just can't talk. It's not that big, fancy $10 word uh, concerning body parts, but concerning actions. You see, we'd have trouble understanding what God's doing, so God puts it in language that we can understand. The same way we'd repent. Well, what do we do when we repent? We know what that word means. It means 180 degree about face. It means I'm doing this, and I turn around, and I start doing this. God was going to destroy Nineveh, but because of what they did, he does not destroy Nineveh. It's not necessarily saying God changed his mind. How can the God that changeth not ever change his mind? 
But what it means is that God, in all of His sovereignty and all of His wisdom, understanding what would take place, He issued a warning, knowing how they would respond. They did respond in turn. God changed what He was going to do. God knew what was going to happen. But that's the language that we can best understand. So God does something very gracious, and He puts it in language we can understand. This is unusual. Look at the next verse. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was very angry. Now, again, I think sometimes we read the book of Jonah, and we read that, and we think, boy, he's just pouting like a little child. Remember what it would mean for Israel. How would you feel? How would you feel if our greatest national enemy, if God had grace upon him? Oh, I know, we all give the right answer, because you know we're here, and you can't lie in the Lord's fellowship hall. I know, but it might make you just a little bit angry. Especially kind of like those folks, it's akin to this anger. Remember when the Lord told a parable about about a man that goes out, can I give it to you in hillbilly language that you'll understand? Is that okay? I'm not changing the Bible, but, but he tells a parable. He tells a parable about a contractor that goes down to the Home Depot to pick up migrant workers. You remember that? And he goes down and he picks up the first load and he says, I'm going to give you $100 to work for me all day. And so they go back and they're framing a house, you know. And uh, he goes up back at lunchtime and he picks up another truckload and he says, I'm going to pay you $100 for working the day. Long about through the day, he forgets that he needs some more material. So about 5 o'clock, maybe 4.30, goes back by the Home Depot, pick up some lumber, he picks up a whole other truckload of workers and he says, I'm going to pay you $100 for working today. And he brings them back. And that first crowd, they're upset. They say, why did you do that? They're working half an hour. We've worked all day and you're paying us the same amount. And you know what the Lord says? He says, you agreed to work for $100. You agreed to that. You weren't upset when we had eight hours in front of us, but you're upset now. Why? You're upset at the goodness I've shown on another human being. Jonah was upset because of what it would mean for Israel. And can I say something? Now this is going to be paradoxical, okay? In some ways, Jonah was right, but in other ways, Jonah was wrong. Jonah was right in that Assyria would go on to judge Israel. They did. In fact, we saw the first half of that prophecy in the book of Joel a couple weeks ago. God sees them, paints a picture through the prophet Joel. They're like a band of locusts that are coming and storming over the nation of Israel. And sure enough, you see it in your notes. I'm sure you've got it about, I think it's 722. Under Shalmaneser, the Assyrian army comes through like a flood and destroys the northern ten tribes of Israel. So in some ways, Jonah is right. In fact, Jonah says that. Verse 2. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? You know what he's saying? He's saying, God, I told you this is going to happen. It's not that he was afraid to go to Nineveh because they were going to kill him. If that was the case, he wouldn't be angry at this point. He went to Nineveh. He gave the prophecy. They repented. Everything's okay. 
What was Jonah doing when he ran from God? It wasn't that he was afraid he was going to lose his life. He tried to commit suicide by having him throw him off the boat. It's that Jonah knew that a healthy Assyria meant a judged Israel. And that made him angry. That made him angry. You know something I found to be interesting with Calvinists? You know what a Calvinist is, don't you? If you don't, don't even bother finding out. You ever notice that Calvinists, all their kids are always part of the elect. Every one of them. Your kids might die and go to hell and not be a thing that you or me or God himself could do about it. But my kids, they're going to go to heaven. That's always their attitude. You know why? Because it's unnatural to imagine that God could have mercy on something we hate and judge something we love. So Jonah's angry. He says, Therefore I fled unto Tarshish, for I knew Thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Kind of reminds me, I, I had a preacher friend in town. We're still friends. I like him. He just ornery. And we had one time one of his young people came to our uh, VBS. You know, they don't believe in VBS because some folk, you know, some church is more spiritual than that. They didn't believe in VBS, so we're, we're of the devil because we had VBS. And one of their young people came and got saved, made a profession of faith in our vacation Bible school. And I did the pastorly thing, which, by the way, I've ceased to do from here on out because I got fussed at it more times than not when I did it. I called him and I said, Preacher, I called him by name. I've known this guy since I, he's known me since I was in diapers, which wasn't that long ago, but he's known me for a long time. And he said... Uh, I said, a young girl came to our church and made a profession of faith. You're her pastor, not me. And I just wanted to let you know so you'd be aware of it. And he said, but, but, see, this is why I have a problem with vacation Bible school. I was dumbfounded. I was thinking, what, kids getting saved? He said, well, you don't know her like I know her. I said, well, I know she said she was a sinner needed to be saved. Jonah said, I knew this was going to happen, God. You know how I knew it? Because you're gracious. Because you're long-suffering. Because you're merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness. Boy, it's just burning him up. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why was it better for him to die than to live? Because he thought if he died, he'd just get to go on and be with the Lord. But if he lived, he'd have to see Israel judged. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? Well, God asks me that a lot. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. And there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. He said, Maybe God will still judge him. <laughs> Maybe God loves me enough to smite them. Well, he's a Baptist. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Now this is going to sound silly to you, but imagine if you're Jonah. To Jonah, that told him there was a show to be seen. He goes up, he makes him a booth. He's going to see God rain fire down on these Assyrians. God springs him up a gourd. Almost like God put an umbrella over him and said, Relax, Jonah, and just wait. Jonah said, Okay. 
everything will be all right. You know, a lot of times if we knew what God was trying to tell us, we wouldn't be near as patient with God telling it to us. If he knew what that gourd was, he thought that gourd was a sign that God was going to judge him. But it wasn't. Verse 7, but God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind. What way is he facing? And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. He says, I see now that God's not going to judge them. I see now that God is not judging them. God's judging me. That's about the time I that God broke me this, this morning. I realize it's it's not them that God has such a problem with, it's me. Because look at my attitude. I'm not I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying if someone is is a pagan, they reject the name of Christ. I'm not saying God just has pity and lets them on into heaven anyway. But I'm just saying this. God has a lot of reason to be angry at them. Don't you believe that? I believe God's upset when people behead children. I believe that. But I just believe maybe God has some things to be upset at me about, too. God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. He says, yes, I have a reason to be angry. Yes, I have a reason to be mad. You gave me this gourd, God. You showed me you were going to judge them. Now you sent a worm, and it's destroyed this gourd, and there's a vehemence swim, and my life is in shambles. I'm going to go back to Israel, and they're going to laugh at me to scorn. They're going to say, he is no prophet. His prophecies did not come true. My life is in pieces, God. Yes, I do well to be angry. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd. Now why did you have pity on the gourd, Jonah? You had pity on the gourd because it was helping you. Boy, that's our motives, isn't it? We love who we love because they love us. And when we only love who we love because they love us, we're not loving like Christ loved. You do well to pray for those that you love. What did Christ say? He said, pray for them are your enemies, those which despitefully use you. Sounds like some of the things I've seen on the news lately. Those that persecute you, those that reproach you. The Lord says, who hates you the most? He says, I want you to love them. He says, I love the gourd. The gourd was helping me. He says, thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in the night. And should I not, should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Now we're done, but I just want to explain two things about that verse. Judging from that, and by the way, that phrase, that doesn't mean cross-eyed folks. <laughs> Can't discern between the right hand and their left hand. It means children doesn't know which is their dominant hand, just children. You put anything in a child, it don't matter if it's right hand or left hand, they're going to drop it. Trust me, I've got one, I know. He says, you're tore up over this gourd because it did something for you. 
Has it helped you? But you want me to turn around and destroy a city that has 120,000 children in it. By that estimation, the population of Nineveh is probably somewhere between 600,000 and maybe north of a million. He says, where's your pity now, Jonah? Where's your pity now? But then he says this, and also much cattle. Is God worried about the cattle? Well, you could say he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Those are his cattle. But I don't think that's what he's saying. When the Lord points to his motivation for mercy, he says this, Jonah, that city is full of kids and cattle. What's he saying? He's saying, Jonah, I know the Assyrians are wicked, but there's a generation after them that has not been wicked yet. And there's something to build on there. There's herds of cattle, there's a city, there's children. What is he saying? He's saying, Jonah, you want me to have wrath because of the present generation. He says, Jonah, I'm having mercy because of the next generation. You know the thing? Lord, help me to say this right. You know the thing that Muslim countries are full of? Lost people. Lost people. I know you want to believe, and I I do too. I'm with you. Don't get mad at me. We can both get together and shake our fist at God and feel like we accomplished something. Because it upset me too. Because there's not a thing in my natural disposition that seeks to have pity on those that want to destroy us. The Bible says that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were the enemy of God. I'm not saying, and this isn't a political commentary. If you think this is a political commentary, I'll get you a CD and listen to the whole thing again. You've missed it. I'm not talking about our politics. I'm not talking about our, our, our national diplomacy. I'm not talking about our military prowess. I'm talking to Christians tonight about the compassion that we need to have for a lost individual. Be, be they some poor little child growing up in a ghetto without a chance in the world. Be they some pagan uh, Muslim that wants to take your head. Or be they some religious, star-shirted Baptist that's riding a church pew straight to hell. Christ died for all of them. And he loves them. And that may upset you. It upsetted me to think that God could love them like he loves me. I just had to be upset. Because the truth is, God does love them like he loves me. So I guess if I want to be like Christ, I'm going to have to learn to love them like God loves them. I'm going to have to learn, not to say that we shouldn't be vigilant, but I'm going to have to learn train myself so that the first thought is not you better watch them the first thought is you better witness them and win them because nothing makes someone less of a threat than when they believe on the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ I know you don't like that part of me that don't either but it's the word of the Lord under the prophet Jonah and it's still true today